Let's open God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read starting in, in verse 9. And we've been working through this section for a number of weeks, although we took a couple of weeks off there. I, I preached over at Community Bible Church when we gathered together with them for worship. That was a, a joyful time. And thank you so much to Jason who preached for us last week starting in the book of Ruth. And just to clear things up, I'm not going on some sort of extended vacation while Jason preaches through Ruth for the next couple of months. I think he, he last week volunteered to preach for the coming weeks of, through Ruth. And so we'll get him in here every couple of months to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it always sounds right in my mind when I say anything, um, so I understand, but, uh, but no, we'll be working through 1 Corinthians uh, as, as we have been, so today, Lord willing, we'll just cover verses 13 through 15, but to pick up some context, let's, let's read starting in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And join me in prayer as we go to God's word. God, thank you that you have told us what is true about the past and present and future. More importantly, you've told us what is true about you. You are unchanging. And so the constantly changing world that we live in, whether we feel that or not, uh, can upend us. And yet we can run to you as the one who does not change. You are consistent. You keep your promises. Your word is true. God, I, I pray then for your help as we venture into territory in your word that uh, my heart feels sometimes too weak to truly understand. God, it is amazing that you would give us rewards for what we have done on earth. And yet, God, I, I am so prone to loving the reward more than the one who would reward me. God, I, I know then that my reaction might be to even despise your rewards, which would also be sin. And so God, uh, I just, I feel like this is, a, this is a weighty text for me at least, and I, I hope for my brothers and sisters too, that we would think very seriously and carefully, but also expectantly for the good things that you have prepared for us. And so help us today. Give your spirit that we might know your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Had a great conversation a while ago about this question. What will you have to show for your life? Maybe you'll, you'll get some riches and so you have some things that you can show. Or maybe you will gain some children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that you would have some family to show for your life. Or maybe you would have skills and knowledge so that perhaps you would have you know, some, some wisdom to show for your life. 
Of course, then Job comes along. If you remember the book of Job, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. That stings a bit when we think about what we have to show. Like, this is, of course, in, in Job's, Job's thinking bigger than we are, but when we think about what we have to show, we can have an earthly perspective. Like, you will leave behind the clothes that you die in, but you will last forever. And so, so really the question of what will I have to show for my life should be more directed at our final accounting before God than about the earthly things that we might heap up. Uh, Scott read for us in Matthew chapter six, and we could continue on in Matthew six. I'm just gonna read a little bit for you. Uh, and and when, when, we, when we hear this, think broader than money. We usually use this passage to talk about money, but think broader than that. This is Matthew six nineteen. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It, it may be the case, Christians, that, that what we have to show for our lives will be very little that can be accounted for on earth. But I would hope that it would be very much that God would account for in, in heaven. So there are potential then for eternal rewards. This is what our text is gonna lead us to. There there are eternal rewards and those rewards are told to us by God to motivate us towards godly living, godly work on earth. Remember we covered this a number of weeks ago but, but verse 10, there is a central command here in verse 10 which is let each one take care how he builds upon it, upon the foundation. So, so we are to be diligent at working at the good things that God has prepared for us. And namely, in this context, in building up the body of Christ, the church, encouraging other Christians, like building up the people and the institution, like thinking about generations and our children and grandchildren, using the eternal materials that God has given us of the fruits of the Spirit, and all doing this to God's glory. There, there's an impetus here for us to work hard in this life as Christians. Now Paul says, start looking to the end. Let's start turning our, our gaze towards the judgment that is to come, toward the rewards and the losses. So, so I want to today prepare you for the judgment that you will face as a Christian. And then to urge you to work for that which will be revealed and rewarded in heaven. So let's, let's start with judgment day. Christians, there is a judgment day for you you will stand before God. In verse 13, it's called the day. So 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Now, now the reason Paul just says the day is he assumes that his audience knows what he's talking about, that these Corinthian Christians know what he's talking about. And that's because this is basic Christian truth. This is basic Bible truth. All people will stand before God in judgment. You'll see it all over the scriptures. So, so we should, when he speaks of the day, he doesn't need more elaboration. We will stand before God in judgment. And in one sense, that might make us a little concerned because if you scan the Bible, you will see that the day is a day of wrath. A lot of times the, the phrase, the, the day of the Lord, uh, especially in the Old Testament, 
describes a cataclysmic judgment of God. Sometimes it's, it's like in a moment when Babylon conquers Judah. Um, but the day of the Lord describes a cataclysmic I can't hardly say that word. It's a good word, though. Cataclysmic judgment of God, uh, an outpouring of God's wrath on people that points to this final judgment. Someday there is going to be a judgment that outdoes every judgment and wrath that outdoes every wrath. So that, that makes us a little concerned, but that's not the complete picture. We look through the scriptures, we also see that the day, the judgment day, is a day of resurrection and life. So the Lord Jesus in, in John chapter five, this is one of the examples we could look at, John chapter five, verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of, of judgment. So though we might blend the words a bit, Christians, your, your judgment is a judgment unto life. It's a judgment unto resurrection and reward. Like we look forward to the coming of Christ because it means a good day for us. Now, Christians like to debate about the nature and timing of all these judgments. And that's fine. I like debating. It's, it's fun. But where we might disagree on when and where and how all this will happen, we can agree on this reality. There will be a judgment. So 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 Give you guys a lot of Bible verses today, so you can really get a handle on this truth. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And remember, Paul is writing to Corinthian Christians. Here's what he reminds them of 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, this is the consistent testimony of the scriptures. You will be judged for what you have done. You will be judged for your deeds, for your works, for your lives as they were lived on earth. And if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, you will be judged for the hidden motives of your heart. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will, listen to this, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation, or sorry, not condemnation, commendation. That means that's a good thing. Commendation from God. See, I, I don't know, you'll pick up, and I've read a few verses, you're gonna see this more. There's a theme here. The judgment of Christians shows what is hidden. It's a disclosing. It's a manifesting. It's a revealing. God will show at our judgment, not just the things we have done, but the true nature and value and motives of our hearts. One of the metaphors that we get then for this is of fire testing metals. That's 1 Corinthians 3.13, right? That, it, that your works will be revealed by fire, and we prayed through 1 Peter chapter one, verse seven, right, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may result in the praise and glory and honor and revelation at the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so like gold is refined in fire and shown its true value, and its impurities also then burned off, so the judgment of God will reveal 
the true value and true impurities of your life. When it reveals the value, it will be rewarded, that which is valuable. And when the judgment of God reveals that which is worthless, you will suffer loss. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Now, it's at this point that we Christians really need to hold fast to the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will be judged by God. The value of your work, the motives of your heart, does that make you feel uneasy? It should. It makes me feel uneasy. This is where we have to cling to the hope of the gospel because some of you, and if, if it makes you feel uneasy, you're probably one of these people. You have very tender hearts and that is a, an amazing blessing, right? You hear this reality. I'm going to be judged for what I've done. I'm going to be judged for the motives of my heart. And yet you start to really get fearful, right? I, I know who I am. I, I'm never perfect. I, I don't measure up. So you start to get really fearful that there's nothing in you that's worth rewarding. Again, this is where we cling to the gospel. Because God does not waste your salvation. Like the, the wonderful hope that we have in Christ is that we are forgiven of all of our transgressions. Like God has set us free from slavery to sin and death. God has certainly adopted you into his family. God has guaranteed in Jesus Christ, the greatest reward that you have not contributed to, and that is the eternal presence with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever, by grace, not by works. So if you're a tender-hearted person and you're thinking about the judgment of God, you must then consider your heart not, not, not out of fear, but out of faith, that ultimately God has done the greatest thing. Now on the other end of the spectrum are these people, some of you are like this, I'm, I'm a bit like this, who are resolutely confident. And, and again, praise God, what a gift. You hear of judgment and rewards and you're like, yes, I'm ready to go. Like, I can do this. I'm gonna work hard. And, and your character is solid to the bone and you know it. That's a good thing. Your deeds are righteous. You have genuine humility. Like, again, you've gotta to cling to the gospel too. Because as Paul will say in chapter four, what do you have that you did not receive? Like all the good works, all the ability to do them, all the character, all the confidence, those are gifts of God's grace. I mean, none of us receives life at the judgment of God because of who we are or who we aren't. Like we face the blessed judgment of God in his grace. He has saved us. He has made us new. He has equipped us for his good works. Like, yes, there will be rewards and losses on the last day, but the greatest gift has already been given and it's secure. Like the judgment of Christians, and this is amazing as you study these passages, you'll see this over and over and over. The judgment of Christians is most wonderfully for all of us, a welcome home. Just one example, Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, so, so as we talk today, and already have, about judgment and works and rewards and losses, don't try to compare your work on earth with the true work of Christ in heaven. That's a fool's game. Like, the rewards and the losses are not a standard by which we measure the genuineness of our salvation or the genuineness of our faith. 
The rewards and losses that Paul talks about in chapter 3 are a measure, rather, we might say, for the maturity of your faith. Because an immature Christian is a real thing. An immature Christian is selfish. They're not submitted to any authority other than their own personal preferences. An immature Christian will not serve. They will not sacrifice. They will not love or pray. And, and, and I say all that because on this side of eternity, immature, lazy Christians will rarely be pointed out. They will rarely be exposed. They will rarely be punished. It's just, it's easy to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then coast. Of course, I mean, I say that because you don't want to be immature, right? You don't want to be an immature Christian. And I don't, I don't want that for you. Uh, I want that for, for this church. I don't want that for anyone. Paul doesn't want that for the Corinthians. This passage is here to motivate us, rather, to work for that which will be revealed and rewarded in heaven. The mature Christian then serves and sacrifices with humility and contentment. A mature Christian is forward-looking, right? Both, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to the blessings that we would pass on to the future generations of Christians as we spread the gospel and raise up our children to know, know the Lord. But a, a mature Christian is also looking forward to the treasures that are laid up in heaven where moth and rust do not, do not destroy. So if that's the case, if that's what we're, we're striving for, if the rewards and the losses are not based on our salvation, but rather on what God has entrusted to us and how we, how we live by faith, what sort of works are we supposed to do? What sort of works are we supposed to do? I covered this somewhat a number of weeks ago, uh, but there's more that can be said. There's, sort of, there's, there's multiple sides to this. Think about some of the words that are used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. This is, notice we're talking about work. Each one's work, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, now I emphasized four words there. Manifest, disclose, revealed, and test. Four words. Those four words are four different words in English, and 1 Corinthians was written in Greek. There are also four different words in Greek, but they all mean the same thing. They all point to the same reality. Manifest, disclose, revealed, test. So, so why is it that God would inspire his word to include four different words, and Paul, the author, would use those four different words, and we would, good translators of the Bible would translate them into four different English words. Why, why such the variety? I'm persuaded that it's this. This emphasizes the nature of God's judgment of us. That is, God, when he judges believers, will make what is invisible, visible. So godly deeds and godly character are mostly invisible on earth. And it's not, not to say that we can't, can't you know, observe what we do or what others do. And it's not to say that we can't even evaluate right, what we do or what others do. We certainly can. Again, it's also not to say that we shouldn't put an effort into building up what is visible. Right? We talked about this with building up the church a few verses before. Putting, putting work into the visible church, looking for visible fruit on earth. All of those things are good. But it seems to me that as I scan these passages about God's judgment, it seems to me that the real value of what we do and who we are is hidden in our hearts. And the hope of our judgment is that God who sees it as Scott read for us, in secret, will reward it. 
For example, if you want to know, you could look at this in Matthew chapter 25. I'm sorry I didn't put this in your notes. I kind of thought of this last minute, but Matthew 25, you know, when Jesus rewards the righteous, he separates the sheep from the goats. And he says, you know, you, you fed me and you gave me a glass of water. You visited me in prison. And they, they just look at him and say, when did we do that? Like, they're not even aware themselves of the godly deeds that Jesus is going to reward on that day. That alone should be proof for us that mostly the judgment of God will be to reveal what is hidden, to see it, and to reward it. This should then give us an absolute distaste for boasting in our deeds. Today we have, uh, we've invented a term, I just heard it used again I think yesterday, the term is virtue signaling. So it's just a funny, funny idea, right? That, that where we do things or say things or even like, you know, wear t-shirts to, to signal the virtues that we have, to appear virtuous. Like usually this is to show everybody else or a certain group of everybody else that we conform to some standard that they are going to applause. The old word for that is boasting, right? It's just bragging, uh, virtue signaling, uh, call it what you will, but... Now, it's, it would be really easy then to stand here. I'm just going to give you a long list of all the ways that other people do this. But, of course, we didn't come here to talk about other people. We came here to have the Lord God examine our hearts. So how do we Christians tend to wrongfully boast about our deeds? I think one example is that we can present sort of a spiritual resume. Sometimes you'll hear this when you meet other Christians, or I hope they don't hear this from you. Um, but we can think like this, right? Well, I was, I was born into a Christian home. I was the leader of the youth group. Maybe you say, well, I was, I was saved from this awful sin, sort of in a bragging way. Or in order maybe to get the applause of one group, you say, you know, I used to believe this doctrine, but now I agree with you. That can get you a lot of, a lot of attention. Maybe you'll, you, you want to give out the list of all the books that you've read that somebody else might think is really, really great. You could talk about all your years serving as a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's the college or the conference you, you go to. Maybe the, the preacher that you've learned under. I mean, and we, we'll sometimes use, the, all these are good things, right? But, but we can sometimes use these things to just signal to other people, hey, hey I'm virtuous. I'm a, I'm a Christian that should be listened to. I'm a Christian that should be admired. And if we're really honest, we're saying I'm a Christian that should be rewarded for my deeds. Again, this is just boasting. I wonder if you will be surprised that God will not judge your resume, but rather your heart. What matters most is hidden. When I was thinking about this, it, it, it instantly, my mind went to a passage uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Paul's instructing women in godliness. And listen to how he says this. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. I mean, so that women, yes, strive for that character. But, but all of us, right? We, we all learn from this. This is wonderful. Like, what is God pleased with? What is precious to God? It's what's hidden. It's what's quiet. It's what's peaceful. It's what other people won't necessarily notice. I mean, and aren't we tempted sometimes to sort of gussy ourselves up for God with our works and our, our character? Aren't, aren't we tempted to, you know, put on, to use the illustration, right, a, some spiritual bling 
or maybe to show off how super white our robes are. But what is precious to God? The hidden person of the heart. I know that in 1 Corinthians 3, I have been exhorting you repetitively towards doing things. And you should be doing, absolutely. We should be doing the good works that God has prepared for us. But that should flow from who you are. It should flow from your motives of your hearts. And so we should give attention to our hearts. And what is the driving motivation of our heart in everything? It's love. Love is the driving motivation of our heart. We will serve the things we love, whether those are good things or bad things. And so as Christians, if we want the hidden person of our heart to be pleasing and precious to God and to be rewarded on the last day, we ought to be motivated by love. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, I promise that if the Lord keeps me alive and you know, here uh, until then, I, I can, I'm excited to preach this. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, these are kind of like summary commands of the whole book. Let all that you do be done in love. And if you want a guidebook for Christian living and working, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love, this is verse 7, bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes, hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. And of course that chapter ends with verse 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide. That is, faith, hope, and love, they remain. They last. But the greatest of these is Love. Do not underestimate the eternal value of ordinary acts of love. We've got to make sure we get this in our heads and our hearts and think through this. Like, love is the ultimate action of being Christ like. Remember what Jesus said the night he was betrayed, 1 Corinthians 13, just as I have, or sorry, not 1 Corinthians 13, John 13, verse 35. 34, Jesus tells his disciples, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You want the universal testimony to everybody at all times and all places. Here it is, if you have love for one another. Ordinary acts of love are the pinnacle of Christ-likeness. This will really be the subject of Judgment Day. Works of love and you know what's really hard about works of love? They are almost impossible to quantify on earth. Think about this. Can you teach somebody kindness? We're trying, right parents? I mean, we're trying. <laughs> we all know. Can you teach somebody kindness? Can you go and pick up a book out of the library downstairs and become a master at encouragement? Can you measure the impact of prayers? No way. Like we can't even scratch the surface. But, but like we also know what it's like to receive kindness. We've all been encouraged and we know what that is. You know the power of a person who has prayed for you through a difficult time. And what do we call that? We call it love. It's hidden and it's mysterious and it's secret and it's real. And, and we know that it's also most valuable. So what will you do in love? I promise you, very few people will see it. You are probably not going to get an award or a promotion because of it, but in God's sight, it's very precious. 
I've got some ideas. I'd also encourage the kids to, to listen to some of these and think about kids, how you can do these things in love. Here's just a list. Go visit a widow. Have a conversation with a teenager. Encourage someone who's tired from their work. Listen, really listen, to the silly stories of the children. Go help stay-at-home mom fold laundry. Send a card to someone who's grieving. Take five minutes each day to pray for your church family. Take a meal to someone who is sick. Include a retired person in your activities. Compliment a young man on his skills. We could keep going, right? These are all just simple things. Is, are any of those really profound? Of course not. Right, but when those things are done in love to build somebody up in Christ, they have a profound effect. Now, I can definitely say a big thank you to our church because my family has received this sort of love from our church family. It is the best, one of the best things about being a pastor is you, get, you receive a lot of love. All these little one another's, little acts of kindness. It's just, I know your way of saying, hey, we love you. I really think Crossroads Bible Church, your reward will be great in heaven. I hope then that I'm not the only one that gets this. This gets to other people. That we give it to each other. Of course, outside of the body of Christ, the ordinary acts of love are even more hidden. Like being faithful in evangelism. Like telling someone the gospel. Inviting them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Praying for them. Conversations over the course of months, years, decades. And what if they never respond? At least not, not like positively. They never put their faith in Christ. What are you going to have to show for that work? A lot of wasted time? You certainly aren't going to boast about it to other Christians. But God who sees in secret will reward you. I've also been encouraging you lately to think about, pray about, reach out to the people in your life who are distant from the local church. The last couple of years, if I think push people even further. Maybe you feel compelled, hey, you're gonna call them, you're going to invite them to come, you're going to visit them. I know that can be discouraging. You pick up a phone, you call somebody, hey, we've missed you, what's, what's been going on? And you get this, oh, well, you know. That's, that's really discouraging. Right? But the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. And we could keep going. The examples abound. Acts of love done in secret are rewarded by God. And again, that doesn't mean that all visible work is worthless. Not at all. Talked about that. But the hardest and the most valuable work is done in the heart and from the heart. So we have to learn a godly contentment to being a maturing person in the hidden places of our heart. I think this hit me, not, not in an advanced way, but more in an elementary way recently, as I was just even thinking of some of the own, my, my stress and turmoil that I have to deal with in my life. And I thought, where is this coming from? And I, I just realized it's, it's coming from discontentment. I think this is what the Lord is teaching me. I was scrutinizing what I could see. How am I doing as a husband, as a father, as a pastor? All of those are really important, right? But, but I think what, what the Lord was, was teaching me as I was praying and reading scripture is to stop being so anxious about what is visible and instead to be content with what only my father sees in secret. That's hard work, but it's work that will be revealed and rewarded in heaven. 
Now the burning question that perhaps you've been asking. What are the rewards? This is great. Maybe we're going to dive into our hearts. We're going to become people, hidden, peaceable, wonderful people in the sight of God, precious. What do we get? What's the reward? 1 Corinthians 13, 14 and 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Oh, hey, what are the rewards? What are the losses? I don't know. I have searched the scriptures. I can't find an answer. I've put a lot of these scripture references in, in your notes. Uh, I wanted to give a whole sermon to this passage to try to figure out what are the rewards and what are the losses. And here we are, telling you 30 minutes in that I don't know. Um, and, and honestly, like the, the, true, the question has always made me very uncomfortable because I, I wanted to do the right thing and say, no, no, everything we do is for the glory of God. Like my reward is that God would be praised. And that's true. That's not everything. I even remember in a, in a seminary class when I was, I was studying the Bible in college, um, trying to make an argument that there are no rewards and losses. Of course, once again, I was wrong. This passage is really clear, and there's lots of other passages that are really clear, which I've, of course, given you today. There are rewards and there are losses for individual Christians in eternity. What are they? I can't say with certainty. Let me give you some clues. First, let's consider the losses. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, so there are works that we do as Christians that will be shown to be worthless. Wood, hay, straw, remember that metaphor? And remember the context of what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and, and we'll get into this in 4 even, even as well. Paul was correcting jealousy and strife and division in the church. And I'll remind you again, those things take a lot of work. They're very tiring and labor-intensive. There are sinful things that we will give our lives over to that tear down instead of build up. This is a warning passage. Paul warning us that if we continue on the path that we're on, someday, not necessarily because we're sinning, but warning the sinner, if you continue on the path that you are on, Christians, someday God will show you how foolish and how worthless all your efforts really were. We ought to heed the warnings of, scriptures and, of the scriptures and repent. That's where we'll go in coming weeks. If you go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and you read about the seven churches, you'll often see this. He's calling Christians to repent of dead works or of evil that is tolerated in the church. And it comes with a warning. Lest you suffer loss. Lest I remove your lampstand. Whatever it may be that the Lord threatens. There's a clear pattern here that if we persist in, as Christians in evil deeds, we suffer loss. We suffer punishment. The good news, of course, is that even our sinful and foolish acts as Christians don't take away the wonderful gift of God's salvation. God's grace is magnified in spite of our waste. The end of verse 15 in 1 Corinthians 3, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't know exactly what that loss will look like on Judgment Day, but it's not purgatory. It's not some sort of temporary trip to hell. Maybe it's shame. Maybe there is some time of grieving before the Lord. Maybe there are tangible rewards that are withheld. 
But we, we, we rest our hope on this, that my greatest reward is in Christ and that is secure. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Of course, when we see warnings in the New Testament, these are meant to point us in the opposite direction. Right? We, we don't want the loss. We want the reward. So what are the rewards? And again, I remind you, I don't know. I think it's too narrow to think of the rewards that we will receive on Judgment Day as tangible objects. Although, I'm going to give you a couple passages. We are told about crowns and robes. So listen to this. This is 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So perhaps, perhaps the reward is a crown. We're also given a picture of clothing, robes as a reward in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 7, which says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, the bride, this is the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So you see the, the correlation there? There's a, there's a fine linen robe that is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, that language is not terribly clear, I, I don't think. I think in both those situations, these seem like more than just simple objects. How can clothes be righteous deeds? Like that's, there, there's more here than just, hey, you get a crown and you get a robe and your crown is a little bigger than the other guy's crown. Like, I don't, I don't think that's how we should be thinking about this. Um, what we do know, though, in the New Testament, that we may not know specifically what God is going to reward us with, we do know the sort of person that is rewarded. This is what we get over and over and over. Back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Speaking of him, Paul himself and Apollos, he who plants and he who waters are one. Or this is, they're, they're one and the same. Like, we're on the same team. We're, we're, we're headed towards the same goal. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. So, so we're, we're rewarded for doing what God has entrusted to us. Or Matthew chapter 5, really the whole Beatitudes, 3 through 12, describe rewards that are connected to the character of Christians. But we could take one, for example, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Again, I, the scripture reading today is, is ringing the loudest in my ears. Our Father who sees in secret will reward your generosity, your prayer, your fasting. Can that not extend to all sorts of other areas of the Christian life? We also have parables, like the parable of the ten minus in Luke chapter 19, where good and faithful and even fruitful servants are rewarded fittingly, that is, according to the work that they did. Luke chapter 19, verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Again, all this is still vague. We don't, we don't build our theologies on parables. But that's really not a problem. Because if you think about this, if the works that are revealed in the judgment are mostly secret, isn't it fitting that the rewards are secret to us? 
It isn't that we need to know what we will receive to work for it. It's rather knowing that God will reward the hidden person of the heart that motivates us to work in love, to work for that which will be revealed and rewarded in heaven. A couple more verses. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. There's so many amazing verses about these judgments and rewards. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you, and there we could say y'all, or everybody, all of us, run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I mean, the greatest reward isn't what we receive for our works. It's that we receive it by grace. It's the presence of Christ in eternity. It's the imperishable new heavens and new earth. It's the, the greatest reward that we will receive is when words become reality. Come, Jesus says, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what will you have to show for your life? What you probably should ask yourself more is, who will see the fruit of your life? Will it be the works that will be seen and praised by people? Or will you give your life to the works that are seen and rewarded by God? So this should, as Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, this should really motivate us again to be done with petty works of division and quarreling and jealousy and strife in the church. Those are the sorts of things that burn up on the last day. And instead, let all that you do be done in love and your Father who sees in secret will reward you Jesus says, Revelation chapter 22, one of the last verses in the Bible. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Let's pray. God, I pray for the hearts of my brothers and sisters as well as my heart that we would be driven by a love for you. May the love of Christ control us because he has died for us. May we live not for ourselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised. May our love for one another be the driving force in our actions and our deeds that we would live joyful lives of love and God, I pray too that you would help us to be content if those are never seen, never praised, never rewarded on earth. Help us to be joyfully content, perhaps even to go into our little closet and close the door and pray that our Father who sees in secret would reward us. God, I pray that Crossroads Bible Church together amongst each other in our community, in our world, would be laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. May our heart be there. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.